Hello, and welcome to Presenting, a podcast where we chat about various topics related to role-playing games, typically Paizo products such as Pathfinder and Starfinder, but also others. I'm John Godek, and with me today is David N. Ross. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So David is a freelance game designer and developer who has worked on over four dozen Pathfinder, Pathfinder 2nd Edition, and Starfinder products for Paizo. Uh, before that, David placed in the top 16 of Paizo's RPG Superstar competition in 2012. In addition to working for Paizo, David has worked on Pathfinder and D&D compatible projects for many other publishers and products, including, but not limited to, Raging Swan Press, Peterson Games, Nord Games, Green Ronin Publishing, Weird Age Games, Encounter Table Publishing, Lost Spheres Publishing, Legendary Games, Zombie Sky Press, and Purple Duck Games. Uh, one of David's recent big projects that I'm really excited about was the conversion of Paizo's Abomination Vault's Adventure Path from Pathfinder 2nd Edition over to D&D 5th Edition. Uh, so, so David, you have been like super prolific as a freelance game designer and developer. Can you talk about your journey to becoming a freelancer in the first place? Ah, well, um, I guess my starting point was definitely playing a lot of the games. I spent a lot of time on RPG forums back in the like early 2000s, Wizards of the Coast forums, Dice Freaks. Eventually, I ended up leading some fan projects. Ended up with some things that I could point to as writing examples that I then used to approach little publishers who do very indie things when they had open. And what was your first thing that you did then with that? The first project I did was more Alden Creature Collection uh, for Headless Hydra Games, which sadly is no longer active. I followed that up pretty shortly thereafter with a project for Purple Duck Games, mm -hmm. working on weapons that grow with you, like before there was a subsystem explicitly for that in the rules. Right, right, right. Oh, nice, nice. And how did that eventually lead you to working with, you know, Legendary Games, Green Ronin, and eventually Paizo? Was that all through RPG Superstar, or was it kind of organically growing both ways? Having these small credits, I think, was instrumental to making a good impression on Paizo, getting in the door once I had the chance. I actually uh, went straight from those two to Paizo. Uh, broader spread of clients was actually after I'd already become well-established at Paizo. Mm -hmm. I think the Paizo name really opened a lot of doors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you've done a lot. I, I mean, you know, I was counting through all your credits from the, the various Paizo systems. Over four dozen credits that you have in there. And, and I'm told, uh, so you had one in particular, the player's guide that you're known for that you were the one of the first authors to get a cover credit for one of those because of all the work that you did on that um so what kind of enabled you or what led you to becoming so prolific as a game designer i think the biggest thing of course is just thinking a lot of time into making sure that i had experience with all the systems i wanted to work with the types of mm -hmm. games i wanted to make play and spending a lot of time building relationships that was important for 
becoming aware of opportunities, having peers to talk shop with, you know, learn from each other. Originally, I made those connections at game conventions. I like, I went mm-hmm. to Gen Con. That was a major career building moment. That was where I, I met my first client at ISO. Of course, I had to have the credits to show them, but I think it was useful to get a foot in the door by being able to go up in person and say, hey, remember me? I was an RPG superstar. Mm-hmm. And then more recently, obviously, stopped going to conventions very much. But I've maintained a lot of connections and continued growing those relationships through online forums like Discord and various social media. Yeah, I've seen you. I actually met you first on uh, Freelance Forge. So is that another place that you've kind of used to connect with, with folks as well? Yes. Um, Freelance Forge has been pretty important in getting in touch with fellow freelancers, people who are interested in the same career track, people also interested in building their skills, people compare notes on there, share gig opportunities. I got so involved there, actually, that I volunteered as uh, an admin not mm-hmm. too long before the original founder stepped down, working full time at Pfizer by then. Right. Mike came up that way. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, first of all, I want to say um, I tried to connect with you before this, and it took us a while to get connected, but you were pretty busy. Um, you got married, congratulations, and then you <laughs> moved all the way over to the UK. Um, First of all, that's got, that sounds like a really cool place to be a freelancer, but there's got to be some challenges with the, the time change and things like that. So what are some of the pros and cons of, of making a move from the U.S. to the U.K. as a freelance designer and developer? Yes. Well, um, I guess the biggest thing is that it makes paperwork a big mess. Honestly, the time zone doesn't matter all that much because as a freelancer, most of my contact with my clients is asynchronous. We'll right. exchange emails or use various messaging systems or things like that. Live calls have never been terribly important for relationship. It was certainly disruptive to not have such easy access to my usual playtest. Mm-hmm. Taxes, of course, are a bit complicated. Note for Americans considering overseas move, the U.S. will always consider you a tax resident, no matter how long you live somewhere else, as long as you're a U.S. citizen. So you'll usually pay the higher of the taxes between the U.S. or wherever you move, or possibly both if there isn't a taxation treaty in place. So hmm. something they watch out for. Are taxes higher in the U.K. than the U.S., or is it the other way? I always thought they were higher in the U.K., but I don't know. It's not as simple as that. Taxes are very easy to work with if freelancing is a like modest side hustle for you. They are generally lower. Um, you can make up to a thousand pounds without having to do any paperwork at all. No taxes or not. Um, whereas in the U.S., that threshold is four hundred dollars. I think it's six hundred. Yeah. Oh, six hundred is a different threshold for when you are uh, filing paperwork involving other people. Oh, yeah, that's that's probably what it is. Yeah, the 1099s. You have to do 1099 if it's over 600. Right, right. Uh, now, if you are making a substantial amount of money, then, yes, the taxes are going to be paid. So, 
I was looking through your uh, LinkedIn actually, because I try to figure out um, where people are coming from and stuff like that. And first of all, I see that you are another fellow uh, Michigan grad. I graduated uh, 2003 from there, um, which is before you started. Um, but, uh, I know you, you have a degree in English from there and then you, um, you did some library work while you were there. Was that while you were a student or afterwards? Afterwards, actually. Afterwards. Um, I found it a very useful part-time job to stabilize my income while I was an established with mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's what I was going to ask you. So it sounds like um, from looking at the, the timing of things, you were a, a part-time freelancer while you were um, a library assistant there. And then like almost for now, the, the last seven years, you've been a full-time freelancer. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's kind of a big jump. You know, what are what were some of the challenges of doing that? Well, um, obviously the biggest one was um, fiscal. Um, freelancing is unreliable, chaotic, poorly paid work. Mm-hmm. These things are generally getting better in the industry as a whole, I should point out. Um, certainly a lot better than they were when I started 10 years ago. Still substantial room for improvement, but I needed to be willing to get by on um, bare minimums. And I also needed to be able to plan and budget very carefully to deal with unpredictable pay scales and pay time rate, mm-hmm. I have had clients be substantially late. I've been very lucky in that I don't think I've ever had a client actually stick me, but I have had a few be probably. And kind of along those the same lines, I noticed that you're not just a freelance game designer, but you're also doing development for different companies as a freelancer as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Is that managing other freelancers for them, or kind of what Sometimes. does that actually mean? It's complicated. That job title can mean a lot of different things to different publishers. I think the one consistent thing it always means is uh, doing developmental editing, taking charge of the project and making sure the whole vision works together. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Any like deep tissue edits that need to happen, I'm responsible for making sure that they get done and that the project is what it's supposed to be. All the promises are delivered upon. The um, concept is fulfilled. And that often involves interfacing with other freelancers, uh, generally other writers at least. Mm -hmm. In-house developers, like they have at Paizo, will often oversee or interact closely with other parts of the project as well. But um, when I'm freelancing, generally, I might address editor questions or occasionally help an artist with ambiguities, but um, I'm not consistently um, wrangling other things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm going to say that of everyone that I've interviewed, and I've done about, I'm nearing 100 interviews. I think about I'm about 94 interviews that I've done of people in the gaming industry you are probably one of the most accomplished folks. You know, I've had Owen Casey Stevens, a couple others that have done quite a few things that similar you have. But all those folks that are, are around this level of accomplishment, or even sometimes less, became full-time game developers for gaming companies. 
Uh, and I'm wondering, is that something that's kind of on your horizon, something you're thinking about, or is your, uh, because of your, your, your husband, and I'm, I presume that's why you moved to the UK, that is going to prevent you from going full-time for a, for a position like that? It's certainly something that's on my radar, but frankly, because pay is so low in the industry, um, full-time jobs don't necessarily pay a lot better than my freelance. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, now, if I got a job at the coast, for example, that would be very financially comfortable. I'm mm -hmm. sure that would be a very, that would be an opportunity worth considering big life changes. Right, right, right. Yeah, I've I've uh, chatted with at least four or five people from who've gone from Paizo to Wizards, and um, it is a life changing uh, amount of salary change for most of them to to be able to actually buy a house and think long term compared to uh, Paizo. But apparently, um, you know, Paizo United, the union there, is making some inroads to helping improve the situation there, and hopefully, that's something that spreads more. Uh, across the industry. Yes, I've been watching the unionization very closely. Um, a lot of us freelancers were very supportive of the union from the beginning, and we're excited to see that. Right. Oh, certainly, certainly. I, uh, I, I know that the freelancers had a, a big hand in putting pressure on Paizo um, through some various means with uh, the projects that we're working on. Um, so you've worked with a lot of different companies on a lot of different systems. You mentioned earlier that one of the ways that you were able to do this is by playing a lot of these different systems or as much as you can. What are some of the challenges of switching between systems as you do? Well, the biggest one, of course, is that these games are all related to each other, which means they're just similar enough that it's easy to mistake one for the other when their rules are addressing similar things. So um, anybody who handles multiple systems, especially those doing conversions, need to spend a lot of effort checking ourselves and making sure that we don't mix them up. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of conversions, um, I happen to know from Ron Lundin that you did a killer job on the conversion of the abomination vaults over to 5e um he just cannot sing your praises high enough just citing your prof professionalism timeliness knowledge of both systems um you know That's looking at how different some things can be in in each system is just remarkable um that given the time period even that you're able to to knock it out for for a full adventure path uh, what are some of the challenges of doing that sort of large-scale conversion over to another system. Oh, well, that was really exciting. Um, I think the biggest challenge for these particular systems, which comes up a lot, I'd say conversions between Pathfinder and 5th edition are far and away the most common requests that come up in this industry. Mm -hmm. um, my biggest challenge there was certainly dealing with the different ways that the systems are addressing counter-building. 5th edition cares a lot about the number of creatures in an encounter, and because the progression is so flat, multiple creatures can overwhelm a party a lot more easily, even if they're far weaker than the 
individual, mm-hmm. individual party members. Whereas in Pathfinder, that is very much not true. Well, it's, it's still true to an extent, but not, not nearly as much. So basically every encounter had to be conceived of over again. And then that templating used as a guide to decide what challenge they get to design the monsters, how to build their abilities, um, how to conceive of things that didn't exist in 5th edition, obviously. That becomes almost like designing all over again a new thing that just happens to be similar to something in another game. It's not... It's often not converting in the sense that people might think of just one-to-one changing some numbers. It's usually thinking about how the mechanics work in each system and thinking about the feel that they're supposed to be creating for the player. Mm -hmm. Difficult encounter. Is this supposed to be eating into your actions? Is this supposed to be a comfortable place to use your area effect? Well, that's Mm -hmm. perfect. So I'm kind of curious about this. I, I have some familiarity with, with 5e, but obviously not in the level that you have. I know that second edition, the math is really pretty tight. How does that compare to 5e? What's the, the math for, a, you know, for this system here, looking at similar things, like when you're converting it, is the math pretty tight in 5e or is it kind of all over the place? It also has a relatively narrow um, band within a level, but the odd thing is that those bands don't move very much as you level up. Hmm. Um, so, like, it's a d20 game that's trying to make it so that your modifiers never make the d20 at all. That was a big issue hmm. with high-level play in, say, 3rd edition Thunders and Dragons, right. where eventually a 20th-level character might be able to completely ignore the d20 roll. D20 roll. They just succeed or fail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in fifth edition, while it has a relatively um, clear set of expectations, you can't just assume the whole party is going to be scaling at the same rate. But you're not adding your level to everything the way you are in Pathfinder Second Edition. Right. So, a designer looking at encounter building and monster building in fifth edition needs to think carefully about what's going to happen to party members who aren't proficient and have to do something involving with the creature. So, um, high saving throws can be a much bigger, or high saving throw DCs can be a much bigger problem when mm-hmm. they subject the whole party to them because a lot of characters just simply aren't having the proficiency bonus at all. They might have a very low ability score uh, modifier as well. With things like attack rolls, it doesn't matter as much because Characters do make a point to making sure they're on class. But there's no way to shore up when you're saying those things. Yeah, that, that's one of the things I noticed that in, in 5e, it seems like the, 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 the DCs for a lot of things are lower. Uh, hit points are lower than comparable levels in uh, second edition. That's just kind of my, one of the things I seem to, seem to be different uh, for me. I, Honestly, you know, looking between the two and, and playing similar characters, you know, across the systems, I, I'm still liking second edition a lot more. I'm curious to see how this uh, one uh, one D and D changes things for for 
for Wizards of the Coast. I don't, seems like they're trying to add some stuff, some of the neat complexity that we have in second edition over, but I don't know. I don't know how that's going to turn out. Have you, have you been asked to do any uh, play testing for that one D and D? No, I haven't been uh, involved with any of that. Okay. I have been paying attention to the updates, of course, but yeah. these things are liable to change substantially before release. Right. If you recall the D&D Next playtest before 5th edition came out. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I know, uh, I know that they're getting a lot of data and doing a lot of analysis to see. <laughs> so... I am hopeful. I'm excited that they are working on adding more complexity. Personally, that's something I really enjoy in the game. It's mm-hmm. a lot of decision making, flexibility, customization. So in fifth edition, for example, I always play Spellcaster because that right. means you get all those choices up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what advice do you have for people interested in becoming uh, freelance writers and freelance game designers like yourself? Well, First of all, I will say that um, through Freelance Forge, I've been on several panels talking about freelancing one-on-one. Uh, mm-hmm. Those can be, those are, were recorded and you could still listen to them on the No Direction uh, network. They were at a few different ISO conferences. They're all called Freelance Forge present Freelancing 101. Um, as far as specific advice, I'd say, First of all, always practice. You need experience with anything you want to write. Mm-hmm. Solicit yourself for work. Solicit clients for work. Uh, watch for um, open calls. Make sure that you are keeping your ear to the ground. See what publishers are up to. Check out their websites. See if they have forums or discords where they pay attention to what the fans are up to. And... When soliciting, it's important to remember that a client choosing not to work with you right now is basically never going to be a, a personal thing. It's mm-hmm. just they might not have room on the project. Your skill set might not happen to line up with exactly what they need. They might have been utterly drowned in solicitations and simply cannot work through them all. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and importantly, Every freelancer needs to know what their time is worth. Pay has been low in this industry for a long time, as I mentioned earlier. So it's very important to pay attention to how much time is it taking you to do things. What is this, what is freelancing doing for you? Is this a fun hobby that sometimes makes money? Are you trying to make this a meaningful source of revenue? Is this competing with your work time? Is this competing with your relaxation time? What is a cost to you and make sure that you are not sinking time into this, that you don't, you aren't getting what uh, you need out of it. Mm-hmm. So that extends to things like negotiate your pay. Part of the nature of being a freelancer is you, know, you have the opportunity to go back and forth with your client a bit on how much particular project should cost. Whether that means royalties or uh, a cash payment up front, what's called a work for hire, 
when you're first getting started, it might be a good idea to take something with a portfolio of course, because exposure is important and having a portfolio of these are important. But make sure that you don't do this more than is comfortable for you. Don't never accept unpaid work on a project that the client is making money from, of course. Mm-hmm. I think that's my spiel. Okay. Well, I think that you hit on a lot of, I think, important aspects um, and really kind of getting into the nuts and bolts of things, uh, actually quite a bit more than a lot of the other folks that I asked this question of. So I, I really appreciate those responses there. So what's next for David? What kind of cool things are you working on that you can actually talk about now? Uh, well, um, if you're excited about adventure conversions, I have another one in the pipe. For Roll for Combat, I converted their Jewel of the Indigo Isles adventure path. Mm-hmm. I believe the first adventure is available now as uh, like a pre-release sort of thing, but the full release should happen relatively soon. That's also a long-form adventure running from first to about tenth level, similar to. Um, Abomination Rolls. I converted that from Pathfinder 2nd Edition to 5th Edition as part of a team. Mm-hmm. In addition, um, Spheres of Guile is a project that I'm overseeing playtests for right now. That's with Drop Dead Studios. Mm-hmm. It's a Pathfinder 1st Edition source book that uh, fleshes out skills and social maneuvering, various utilitarian things. It's a sister book to Spheres of Power and Spheres of Might, which they released previously. Well, neat. And you mentioned that you haven't been going to many conventions now. Um, is that something that might change in the future, or is your location in the UK going to make it very prohibitive to get to Gen Con and Pisacon again? Yeah, I don't foresee spending a lot of time at those cons soon. But it's not out of the question. I mean, I do visit the United regularly. In addition, I do plan on checking out the game conventions here in the UK. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dragon Meet in December, very likely. There's also in summer UK Games Expo, mm-hmm. which I also has another one. Right, right, right. Well, David, it's been great getting the chance to chat with you and get to know you a little bit better. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me.